Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. How many police officers have reported encounters with UFOs? Did the dramatic UFO police chase depicted in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind actually take place? What happens to officers who report these sightings? Hi there, and welcome to the 544th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and on a uh, special hour-and-a-half edition. I'm Ben, and those uplifting questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So we've uh, talked about uh, police UFO encounters in the uh, UK many times on this show, but this evening we welcome a new guest uh, to uh, encounters in North America. So we do welcome calls during our show. The number is uh, 401-766-1240, or locally, uh, that's locally, I should say. And from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. James Bauk is a former New York State Park Police officer and a retired auditor for the New York State Controller's Office. He is also a past New York State director for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Jim writes... Quote, in 1970, I began my first UFO investigation and have never stopped. Unquote. He is co-author with Frank Soriano of UFOs Above the Law, a compilation of UFO reports by law enforcement officers. He uh, is working on three other books. Uh, Jim, uh, what um, website would you like uh, people to be able to uh, find information about you on? Well, right now I really don't have a website. We're working on it, and... Hope to have one up soon. Okay. Well, let us know, and we'll put a link to our uh, to yours on our uh, show site. I'll be glad to. Okay. Okey-doke. So, Jim Balk, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So, first thing uh, many people uh, do after seeing what they believe is a UFO is call the police. So, Jim, on average, how many uh, UFO reports do police in the U.S. receive every year? Well... I'm not really quite sure how many. I haven't been able to get that information. They do get some, but probably not as many as we would hope because most people are afraid to call. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the police themselves are part of the problem because when they get a UFO call, they're skeptical, and they make the caller feel uncomfortable well just if i can interject here ben i know you have some more questions but uh, ben and i a few weeks ago well actually well, it was last month actually we're with um, mark d'antonio who was uh, mufon's director of uh, audio and video analysis uh on right. a, we kind of brought him in on a case in connecticut and he had a drone that he was using and uh, to, to scout out this area where we suspected some stuff was going on and he had mentioned that he called the Connecticut State Police to let them know that he's going to be flying this drone because, among other things, people tended to call in with UFO reports, yep. which is interesting. And, uh, and they all, the state police in Connecticut know him. He's a well-known fellow um, astronomer, very, very distinguished uh, expert in our opinion, certainly. And I'm sure you know him, too, because you're involved in MUFON. Right. But um, anyway, that, I just found that an interesting uh, comment that people tended to call in these reports when they saw drones. So um, I'll just let Ben continue his questions. I just wanted to make that observation. Yeah, well, I mean, people people could mistake a lot of things for um, UFOs, but uh, in in that case, I suppose. Anyway, so well, I mean, I figured there there aren't like exactly 
it, it's I'm, I'm trying to remember how I worded this in my head. I'm pretty sure I worded it as um, I feel as if that the uh, the way that these reports are handled is probably one of the reasons why we don't really know much about this. Because if if right. someone yeah if somebody calls and says oh I just saw a UFO over my house and you'd probably just be like well this guy's either either high on something or drunk you and you you just it, it's 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 actually kind of sad how it's not taken seriously. But, you know, few people realize that there's an entire chapter in a book called um, Fire Officer's Guide to uh, Disaster Control that says what to do if a UFO crashes. So not ex- not just a sighting completely, but if it crashes. Complete with instructions. And, oh, I'm sorry? I was just going to say, we included that chapter in our book. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, because it comes complete with instructions about uh, backing off from alien bodies until federal agents get there. And this book is present in every police station in the country. So do police take UFO reports seriously? I mean, I'm assuming they don't most of the time. Or does it depend on the department or the officer? Well, for one thing, though, with that chapter you just mentioned about the firefighters, mm-hmm. that only appeared... I think in the 1992 edition, That's and right. they never they yeah. never put it back in again. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought that was uh, yeah. hmm. no. They only one year they did it. Really? Well, that that says a lot in itself. I mean, this is this is like genuine stuff to be prepared for. <laughs> You have to be prepared for anything when it comes to emergency management. I mean, even it's if, true. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's just what uh, what makes sense to me at least so what generally happens if a police officer is the one reporting the sighting well for one thing most of them don't say anything to their other officers for a while until it gets to the point where it's bothering them a lot and they have to tell somebody or in some of the cases as we mentioned in the book a whole department or multiple departments see the same sighting at one time. Hmm. It's kind of hard not to not to mention it. Very true. Okay, I guess you, um, there's a question here about fear of ridicule. You've pretty much answered that. Uh, Jim, to the best of your knowledge, uh, what uh, put it, leave, leaving aside ancient Greek and Roman soldiers reporting, quote, flying shields, I mean, what, what, to the best of your knowledge, what's the first reported UFO sighting by a police officer, the oldest one you know about? Boy, I, I I can't tell you off the top of my head. Uh, I'm sure we probably mentioned it in the book, but mm-hmm. I I don't know because in the we date them all in the book and they're all according to the date. If you want, give me a second. Mm-hmm. I could probably tell you what I've got here. Sure, sure, go if for it. By all means, yeah. I'm. Uh, uh, I'm thinking, too, of, uh, as you look that up, Jim, I'm thinking of the case of 1964 with Officer Lonnie Zamora. Zamora. Yeah, Zamora. That, in... I believe that was the one. Oh, all right. Well, we're... I think that's the year earlier. We're on the same page. That's Socorro, New Mexico in 1964. Can you tell us a bit about that? Okay. And it, that, was, that was the earliest we, we included in the book. But okay. On that... On that case, Lonnie Zamora was just a patrolman who was sitting out along the road watching for speeders. And a motorcyclist happened to go by real fast, 
and he started out after it. And during the chase, he heard a, an explosion. So he diverted his attention to where the, the explosion had come by. And he went over into that direction where when he got up on this crest, looking down, he was able to see a object on the ground with what he described as little people, little children-type people, standing by the spaceship. As they noticed him, they immediately got back into the craft, and it took off. Now, the difference with this case, with a lot of other ones, is there were flames involved in the craft. Flames as in uh, engine exhaust kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we don't know if uh, it was an old model, and General Motors or Ford hadn't come up with a new UFO yet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but the, the flames had burnt the brushes uh, around the area where it was. So he went down there to check out the spot, and as he was doing it, a state policeman, a new Mexico state patrolman, stopped by to give him a hand, and they had the pod marks and the burn marks which was verification that something had happened there. Okay. Yeah, and it was well covered in the press. I remember I was, uh, what was I, gee, 11 years old, and uh, I remember reading about it in the Hartford Current. It was well well covered. Um, relatively objectively, as I recall. Now, they didn't hold the man up for ridicule or anything else. And uh, Well, they, they tried, actually. Uh -huh. the, the military tried to put it down, and sort of put him down. Unfortunately, the chief of police and the local community had so much respect for, for Lonnie that they stood up for him, and they vouched for him. And the uh, those that wanted to destroy his credibility weren't able to do so. Mm-hmm. Well, very often the officers are um, not alone when they have these uh, these experiences, as I understand it. Sometimes the partners are with them. Uh, can you tell us about some cases that were uh, had multiple police officers uh, involved? Oh boy, there's. Well, let me let me go to the one in. Uh, there was one in Warren County, Ohio. You probably heard of it. Uh, but I don't know how many listeners have. But it was around 1964, and a UFO had been seen by a couple of police officers out on duty, and there was a lot of chatter on the radio about it. And two police officers uh, in another town were just coming out with a cup of coffee and they were getting in their patrol car when this object flew by them as fast as it could with police cars chasing. So they decided to join the chase. <laughs> now, and I think altogether there were probably 18 police officers chasing this object, and they ended up going from somewhere just outside of Cleveland 
to Pittsburgh. And the speeds were going up excess of 100 miles an hour. And the dispatcher on duty tried to contact the Air Force to find out what it might have been and if they had it on radar. Well, the Air Force wasn't giving them any information. And they just happened to tell the dispatcher that obviously what the police officers were seeing was Venus. <laughs> so one one of the officers, in response to the dispatcher, wanted to know, how does Venus go under a bridge? <laughs> and this is the case on which Spielberg based that sequence in Close Encounters, is that correct? That's about, I, I believe that was the, the, the scene that they used. Well, I remember the that story. Yeah, I remember the uh, the quote from the film. Uh, one of the fellows watching this says, "Well, they can fly rings around the moon, but we're years ahead of them on the highway." <laughs> so that was <laughs> okay. I guess uh, Ben's got a question here about. Uh, yep. Oh, I do have a question. You are correct. So, what other cases are uh, stand out among them? Um, oh, you mean among multiple? You know, yeah, any of them yeah. at all, actually. Uh, that's certainly... Oh, okay. Well, eventually what I'm going to want to do is I want to get into some of the sightings of, that my partner had had. Because my partner, Frank Soriano, was the reason we wrote this book. Okay. Oh, no, go right ahead. And, and he's had numerous sightings. And it was back to Bruce McAbee that eventually told Frank, you know, you ought to write this down and put it in a book. Yeah, we know Bruce, yeah. Yeah, and so Frank decided to do that, and he called me up and he said, we're going to write a book. But uh, but Frank, Frank and his wife both are retired New York State correction officers, and they had a lot of sightings while working, while they were on the job, even, well, let's see, let's go back to, I'm trying to think of the year, I think it was 1984. Frank was working Sing Sing Prison when all of a sudden he thought a riot was breaking out because of all the noise and the chatter on radio. Hmm. And he tried to find out what was going on. And what he ended up finding out, and he didn't see this, he was only a third-party hearsay, but a UFO had hovered over Sing Sing Prison, and the guards were going crazy looking at this thing. Some of them photographed it, but the film disappeared. Nobody's ever been able to find it, and the... Uh, supervisor of the prison had ordered all of them not to talk about it. That they weren't they weren't allowed to mm-hmm. to say anything that had happened. There you go. And another one that happened nearby that area, and it was probably within the same time frame, maybe a year or so more, was the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Mm. 
and UFO was seen hovering over that plant. Now, the witnesses to that were retired New York State police officers who were now working as security for the power plant. And they didn't know what to do. They were afraid that it was going to cause a meltdown or shut down the reactors. And they started to to panic and run around. Some of them were grabbing their guns, ready to shoot if they had to. And then the UFO just went. What what did the UFO look like? Oh, I was afraid you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember the exact description of that one. Well, you know what I'm thinking of? Was this in any way related to the uh, the Hudson Valley? Yes. Flap? Okay. Yeah, we're kind of interested in that, and it, we don't seem to be able to find out much about it. Um, maybe I, I, there must have been officers who uh, witnessed that. Okay. That, that was in the, the 80s, book? was it? Yeah, that was, oh, okay. Now, you, you're bringing up a sore wound. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> let me explain why in a minute. Sure. But it had, this happened around the Hudson Valley sighting, around the end of 1982, around December or so, till about 1985-86. And there, there's been sightings there since then, but this was a big flap. It's all documented in the book, The Hudson Valley UFO Sightings, which is, and it's titled Dark Stage, mm-hmm. written by J. Allen Hynek, Philip and Bragno, and uh, Bob Pratt yeah. wrote the book. So if you, you read that book, you'll learn all about the Hudson Valley sighting. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things in there is, and we included it in ours with a reference, but the first witness to that sighting was a female police officer mm-hmm. in Carmel, New York. Okay. And... She went back and reported it to her station, and and she got mocked for it until it started coming closer, and pretty soon dozens of police officers in that area and in Connecticut. It, it, it reached out from around Dan, just a little east of Danville, mm-hmm. Connecticut. They went out as far as the... Uh, Hudson River and the Pine Bush area of New York State. It went down from as far south as the middle of Westchester County all the way up to Albany, New York. It's quite a large area. Yeah, oh yeah, and they covered a they covered a lot. A lot of sightings. There were thousands of witnesses. A lot of these witnesses were uh, police officers, there were politicians, there were businessmen, and not just your average ordinary witness, but which they were the most that had seen it and reported it. Now to come to my sore thumb. Uh, You mentioned earlier that I was a New York State Park police officer. Mm -hmm. I was a police officer in the Palisades, the Interstate Park Police covering the Palisades Park Police area, which 
imported it from, I'm not sure if you're familiar with much of New York, but... Uh, sorry, yeah, I went to school there, yeah. Okay, Bear Mountain, which is at, near West Point. Yeah, Hudson and, Valley, yeah, yeah. Right. So, my area of patrol was from south of West Point into New Jersey, including the uh, Palisades Park, Parkway and the park itself. And I did this, I started working there in 1982. Now, because of a political budget battle, I got laid off in 1983. This was right in the heart of the Hudson Valley sighting area. Mm -hmm. I left just as all the sightings were happening. I never got to see one. Oh, that's bum luck. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they were being seen all over the place. There you go. Yeah. Right. So are there any cases that go beyond sightings, um, like where officers actually had close encounters or abductions and stuff like that? Uh, yes, there have been. It and, uh... Oh, sorry, in, I was, was going to say which, our, which was, like, most no, notable. I was going to say, in our book, UFOs Above the Law, all we talked about were UFO sightings. However... We are working on UFOs above the law, too. Oh, okay. And in this book, we are going to include some of the same sightings, but we're going into the abductions. Oh. A lot of police officers have been abducted. And so it, it's more than just seeing a uh, UFO. There have been some police officers that have lost their jobs because the abduction interfered with their lives so much that they weren't able to function properly and, and do their job anymore. One of them, and I'm trying to remember his name, I believe he was down in Kentucky. He was a 22-year-old patrolman who became sheriff or became the, the sheriff of that area and had his sighting. And three days later, he had to resign because he, he it bothered him too much. Wow. And he couldn't do it. Yeah. So uh, are, there, are, are there any other cases without, without spoiling your, your, uh, your next book? Anything? Oh, no. I'm, I, I've been given permission by Frank to talk about it. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll go into one of the sightings that Frank had. And, yep. uh, in fact, he's had numerous uh, sightings with investigation. But I'll, I'll talk about two of them. Uh, he and his wife were driving home from work. They worked at Great Meadow. No, not Great Meadow. Uh, where was it? There. Yeah, it was Great Meadow Prison. Uh, correctional facility in Washington County, New York State. They lived up in Ticonderoga. So they would drive from Route 22 uh, from the prison to home and from home to the prison to go to work. 
a distance, I think, of about 30 miles. One night they were driving along the road and it was raining like crazy. And as they were rounding this bend, Franklin, actually, I think his wife saw this light first along the side of the road up on top of the mountain. Well, the mountain turned out to be in Vermont because they're that close to the border. They were only about five miles uh, from from Vermont. In the Champlain Valley. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And as they were driving along, they saw this light that covered almost the whole width of the mountain. And it was estimated after we, we did the investigation that it was probably a mile long. And it was all lit up. But Frank pulled over to the side of the road because he wanted to look at it. And he's rolling, he rolls down the window, sticks his head out the window to make sure that what he's seeing is real and he's getting wet from the rain. And he's watching it and he shuts off his windshield wipers and turns off, off the headlights. Well, as he turned off the headlights, all of a sudden his wife started yelling and screaming at him. Frank, come on, it's time to go. Frank, let's go. And she's getting louder and louder. Frank, we have to leave. We're not supposed to be here, and they know we're here. Well, Frank kept saying every time, in a minute, in a minute, I just want to look a little longer. Well, then she turned around and she started punching. She was getting very upset. She's hitting him in the arm and the shoulder. Finally, he says, okay, okay, we'll go. He turns the car back on, turns the wipers on, turns the lights back on. Oh, to go back a second. When he turned his headlights off, this object on the mountain, the lights started to dim also. Wow. And that's when she started. So he backs the car up, and they drove home. I asked him, I said, Frank, did you have any missing time? Frank was, he, he was well aware of things that were going on because he had had all these sightings for so many years. And he said, no, he said it was only, we were there only a few minutes. Okay, I'll have to interrupt you, uh, Jim, because we have to take our top of the hour break here. Uh, we are listening to you're, you are listening to Behind the Paranormal special edition Behind the Paranormal Paul, Paul and Ben Eno on ON twelve forty a.m. and onworldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our interesting guest Jim Bauck. Stay with us. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday, weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got Gold Cuts guests in our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal, the second half hour of our special hour and a half show this evening. And we have as our guest, UFO expert and author Jim Bauch, who is the author of, I'll give him a chance to talk about the book now because it will burn up 
the rest of uh, this half hour pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, we're talking about UFO experiences by police officers in the United States. Now, Jim, tell us about your book and where people can find out more about it and where they can get it and your upcoming website. Okay, well, the upcoming website is still a mystery to me because we haven't even picked the, uh, the material to go into it. But the book, UFOs Above the Law, published by Schiffer Books, and it can be gotten on Amazon, the Barnes & Noble website, where you can purchase it from Schiffer Books uh, personally. On their website. Very good. Okay, excellent. Now you were talking. We had to interrupt you. You were talking about two experiences by your co-author, who was also, was also a, a former police officer, Frank Soriano. Uh, so please con- continue where you uh, where you left off. Okay. Well, as I was saying, that they had just left this mountain area that they had been looking at these lights on, and. They got home and went to bed because it was after midnight, which was when the trip started. They didn't think anything of it, except that Frank wanted to go back and see if anything was still up there. They had been driving this road for years, I think 13 years at the time, and never saw anything on that mountain. Frank drove back over there to see what was up there that had lights. There was nothing on the mountain, just trees. And nothing especially the size of this object that they saw. So he gave me a call, and I went up there and we looked at it. As I mentioned, I asked him if he had any missing time, and he said no. And he stuck with that for years until at one point, and I'll reference the reason why in a minute, but he had been gone down to see what happened in New York City. And I'm, I'm sure that most of your listeners have, are aware of what happened with the, the foremost authority on UFO alien abduction, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Oh, but Javi, yeah, we, we knew Bud. Yeah. 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 So he, he was down there with Bud, and Bud was interviewing him about another case, or actually regressing him, and in the conversation after the regression, what happened to mention to them, have you seen anything else at the time? And so Frank said, yeah, well, while we were driving home from work one night, we saw this light on the mountain, and Bud said, okay, describe it, and he told it basically like I just did. Mm-hmm. And he says that all it was was just two rows of lights that went from one end to the other. And they were amber-colored lights. And then his wife stopped and said, well, Frank, don't forget about the little lights. And he said, there were no little lights. And uh, Bud asked her to explain what she'd seen. And she said, Around every large light, there was a small little light that went around each one of those. Now, Frank described the, the lights he remembers as being the size of uh, two buses to, on top of each other. 
two buses. That's how big they were. That's how big the each light was. Okay. Now, Marion saw smaller lights all around all of these big lights. So Frank turned to Marion and said, that's impossible. How come, how were you able to see something and I wasn't? So Bud interjected and said, Frank, Marion was a lot closer than you. And that's all they would go into. Hmm. Wow. The, the only in, inference into that is the fact that Miriam had been abducted. Frank had been turned off. But the other case, the one that got them down the butt, was Frank and Miriam were, I think it was on a, a weeknight, Tuesday night, they were watering. Well, Miriam was planting flowers in the ground in the backyard. Frank had the hose. He was watering them. Corner of his eye, he saw this thing shoot out of a cloud in the sky. This is over Ticonderoga, New York. And so he quickly dropped the hose, ran into the house, grabbed his camcorder. He hmm. came out with, it, with his camcorder, and he got... 12 seconds of video of this object before it disappeared behind a building next to their property. So Frank started to run to the back of his yard where this object would be visible from the back of the house. And as he got to the back of the house, he slowed down. He swung the camera down, holding it, instead of up by his eye so he could see through it. Looked up at the roof of the house next door, turned around, walked back to the house, and put the camera away in the case. So, naturally, I got a phone call, and I went up there to, to visit with them. This was before Frank started getting involved in... Uh, the investigation part of UFOs. And again, I asked him, I said, Frank, did you have any missing time? And he says, I don't think so, no. I says, what did you do after you put the camera away? He says, I don't know, I don't remember. <laughs> he says, I don't remember anything until the next morning. And he and his wife never discussed this object for eight days. Hmm. Hmm. When all of a sudden, after eight days, Frank says, Marion, I took a picture of a UFO. And she says, yeah, I know. He says, how do you know? And she says, I was there with you. Well, how come we haven't talked about it for eight days? Well, this started a bug Frank no end. I knew what had happened just from listening to him. But unfortunately, not being all that close with Frank, he was just a, uh, a witness to me at the time. I was not going to tell him, Frank, you were abducted. Mm. I, they, the witness has to realize that his or herself it's not up to the investigator to say it. 
the investigator should know it, can make notes about it, but should not be the one. Because if he's wrong, he's going to screw up the, the witness's whole life and future mm-hmm. that he was abducted by a UFO. Yeah. So, so much for his police career. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he was worked on the job at the time. But Frank eventually went down to see Bud Hopkins. Bud regressed him. And what they found out was that after Frank put the uh, camera back in the case, he turned around in, in his dining room and started walking back towards the kitchen to go out to the backyard where his wife was. And there was this small gray in the kitchen. The gray, the gray being uh, the, the common term alien. for alien being. Right, yeah, yes. okay. Most common well, kind, yeah. His, his kitchen roof was a, oh, what is the term for it? Not flat, but it was more like a... The cathedral uh, ceiling? Really? Cathedral, yes, yeah. thank you. He had a cathedral ceiling in his kitchen. And through the regression, he recalled rising up into the air off the floor, leaning at an angle level with the the ceiling in his kitchen, going through the roof. He said he was able to see the nails in the plywood in the roof. As he got through the roof, he saw the UFO, the same. UFO that he had videotaped, which was approximately about 70 feet in length, and it was shaped like a peanut. Hmm. Not a conventional UFO, not a disc, not a, a ball, or even a cigar shape, but it was, it, it came inward in the middle, on the top and the bottom. He said it almost looked like two eggs put side by side. A door opened in the craft, and he started to walk or float through the door. At that point, he started getting agitated, and he told Bud, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to know what happened. But this Bud canceled the... Well, while he was under hypnosis. I'm sorry, what? That's while he was under hypnosis, right? Right. Okay. While he was under hypnosis. All he knows is that he was but he was able to see through the door. He said he saw a table like object and there were five or six of the gray aliens around this table. Two whatever they were doing, putting things or something on the table. He said it reminded him of a uh, a group of waiters in a restaurant who knew what they were doing and didn't even bump into each other. Hmm. But that, that's all he recalled. Now he's at a point where now he wants to go through the door and see what, what happened. But unfortunately, Bud's passed away, so we're going to use another... Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Bud Hopkins was uh, probably the most renowned expert in alien abduction, one, one of the most renowned experts in alien abduction. 
of the 20th century and into the 21st, uh, we met him, Ben and I met him in 03 when we were, I was speaking at a conference in West Virginia, and uh, we, we were just about to get into some uh, interesting um, discussions on a photo album he had, and he said, and he and I sat down, and this is, these are our uh, scoop marks and things that appear on the bodies of people who believe they've been abducted, and I said, my gosh, those look just like some of the marks you see on people who have had uh, poltergeist attacks, you know, from our end of the paranormal, because we're pretty okay. much ghost research, and uh, I found that was really, but that's who Bud Hopkins was, unfortunately, he uh, passed away a few years ago, and uh, that's, that's the fellow that uh, Jim is referring to in, in these discussions. Now, Jim, um, I wanted to ask you, if, please, if there's more to the story, please, please say, but then I wanted to ask you about your own experiences, both uh, either as a police officer or as a civilian. Okay, as a police officer, I never had any sightings. Okay. Uh, like I said, I, I missed them all because there were some happening in that area. Thanks. The budget the cuts will get you every time. <laughs> I, was, I was down there, but I didn't see any. Mm -hmm. the, that was just the beginning, and it started to really pick up after I left, and I, I moved back from the area that we were back up to Albany, New York, where I still had a job waiting for me. And they called me back a few months later, but I refused to go back down. But I did have a sighting, and it was, oh, when was it? Probably about 2004 from my backyard. Okay. Now, I had been investigating UFOs since night, well, my first investigation was in 1970. I started. So was mine. Well, mine was 71. Yeah. Okay. My I I was researching and reading and collecting newspaper articles uh, since 1963. Hmm. But my my first sighting, I was sitting out in my backyard. I had been doing this. I promised to do this for a whole month because. The, the story going behind this is that Frank kept telling me about all of his sightings. And he would tell me that every now and then he would be doing something in the house and he would get the urge to go outside and take with your camera and take a picture. Frank's got hundreds of pictures of this same UFO. Now, every one of these pictures including the video, has been analyzed by uh, Bruce McAbee. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce McAbee, uh, just in case anyone doesn't know, he's been a guest on the show before. He uh, is a, a he's a, it's Dr. Bruce McAbee. He's a, a photo yeah. and video expert for, uh, done a lot of work for the military, so he's a very, very highly qualified person. Uh, go ahead, I just wanted to explain. Okay, that. now that's good. Uh, so, Frank, uh, Frank would get his camera and he'd go out and take the picture. He'd call me up and he said, I got three more. And the next time I went up to see him, because at this point, Frank had moved from Ticonderoga to Saratoga, New York. And we were much closer uh, in distance and our friendship. And so when I get up there, I'd look at him. But one day, Frank got thinking about it. He says, they can... Tell me when they want me 
to go out there and, and see them. And when they don't want me to, I don't know. So he says, somehow they're communicating with me. And he said, I want to try and experiment. He said, you've never seen the UFO. He says, if they can talk to me, then I'm sure they can read my mind. I'm going to talk to them. So for a week, Frank kept sending thoughts. Let Jim see you. Let Jim see you. Jim's a nice guy. Let him see you. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he told me he was doing this, I laughed. And I said, well, I hope it works, but I doubt it. So I sat out in my backyard for two weeks, every night, about the time that Frank would see his UFOs, which was between 7 and 8 o'clock in the evening. I had with me uh, binoculars, 10x binoculars, and a 35-millimeter film camera with a 135-millimeter lens and a 2x color converter. I was bound and determined to see something, if it was there. Mm -hmm. One night I was sitting out there, and I thought I saw it. By the time I grabbed my camcorder and uh, the binoculars, the closest thing to me, it was gone. So I sat out there again. And one night I happened to look slowly across the horizon. This is going off into a distance. I would probably say a good... 10 miles away. And I grabbed my binoculars and I looked at that real picture and then I quickly set it down and I grabbed my camera and I took five pictures of it. I looked at it again through the binocular and it looked identical to what Frank had been describing. Mm -hmm. A peanut shaped silver or white UFO. Do you see it mostly when the sun is Blistering off it. I quickly, I, I don't know how much film I had shot already in the camera. I took off for the nearest drugstore and I had the pictures developed. I got the pictures developed. I, I had the, uh, one or two of them enlarged. I scanned them on my computer and I blew them up to the point where I could see them really good. I called up Frank and I said, Frank, don't get excited, don't get alarmed, but I think I got it. And that was my way of seeing it. Now, as to whether or not Frank had anything to do with it, I don't know. I've never seen anything since. Well, one of the things that strike, well, a lot of things strike us about uh, every, just about every aspect of the UFO experience uh, raises a great many questions and of course assuming that someone hasn't gone off the deep end and it is a legitimate experience much of what you've said we hear from people really all over the world and the experience that Frank had of feeling that you should go out at this particular moment and take a shot in the sky even if you don't see anything uh, that was um, th th that's a, a rather uh, common experience among those who are uh, of that of that mindset 
Mostly uh, the ones that have been abducted many times. Exactly, exactly. And uh, the, one of the questions I, I just wanted to ask here is uh, our local listeners would be most interested, um, since you are of that vintage, you know, sort of way back in the 70s, uh, if you had ever heard of Joe Farrier. Uh, Joe was the uh, uh, one of the publishers of his Probe magazine here. It was published here in Rhode Island, and he was uh, a talk show host on this very station for over 50 years and passed away a few years ago, sorely missed, and um, he came on our show one time and mentioned that he, have, of course, uh, had to left the UFO field around the early 70s because he just wanted to have a normal life again, and he did. But he was a renowned expert at the time, and I wondered if uh, you know you had uh, heard of him or if you even perhaps knew him. No, I'm, I wish I had been. Yeah, oh, no. One, oh, we no, used to look for Every I, Monday I we'd look forward to, to meeting him here at the, yeah. stu- the studio. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, I just I, I usually ask uh, folks of our uh, of our vintage uh, whether they knew Joe. But in any case, yeah. among the questions that arise are, uh, and, and this is your your belief as a UFO researcher, do you believe, as Stan Friedman does, that these are nuts and bolts craft from other planets, or could there be more to it? Could we be with the interdimensional? Beings, or uh, even you know, crossovers with what people often think of as uh, parasites or demons or whatever folklore term you want to use. What do you I, think I, these I, really are? I do believe they are nothing but scraps. Mm-hmm. That they are solid things. To, I mean, to hold a being in it. Uh, the people that have been abducted recall going up into these crafts. They're on a solid table, uh, and they're being examined. In the case of Travis Walton, who was able to run around in the craft, mm-hmm. going from room to room, and he even had control of the ship at one point. But, uh, yeah, I do believe that they are what? As for the interdimensional, I'm, I'm not ruling that out as a possibility because there are so many different and so many different types of entities that who knows if if the the ones coming from the stars are one uh, classification of alien and maybe we're getting visited by somebody else also and it would explain a lot how these crafts can be moving across the sky and then just blink out Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour here. Uh, ben, did you have any further questions before I ask uh, one of my own? I do not. Okay. I wanted to point out, everyone, that uh, Jim Bauk will be speaking, uh, as will we, uh, at the second New England UFO conference on October 17th in Lemonster, Massachusetts. And, uh, Jim, can you give us a preview of what you'll be talking about? Well, basically, I'm going to be talking about the book when Steve contacted me, he asked me to, to uh, talk about UFOs above the law and UFO reports by law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, and one of the reasons we wrote this book is that, and I think you might have touched on it a little, is that the police officer is the most credible witness that you could probably find. His testimony alone could put somebody in jail almost for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, if 
something he says in court is going to be strong enough for a jury to, to believe and take action like that, then if he says he saw a UFO and this did that or that, he's taking a big chance because he can lose his job, he can lose his credibility, uh, it will affect his family, and he's taking an awful lot of a chance by opening up his or her mouth. Yeah. So they're very careful about what they say, and unless it's something that they just can't let go by anymore, they have to speak up and say something. Well, you know, I really hear that because in 1974 I was involved in a poltergeist case in Connecticut, and uh, most of the witnesses, I'm one of the few surviving major eyewitnesses because I was there for three days, but all the rest, most of the rest were police officers and firefighters. And they, they stood there in groups and watched these things happen, things flying through the air and all this business, and uh, it was hard. they couldn't cover, cover it up. It's hard to deny. And a uh, book is coming out about that in August, and we'll be talking about that too. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Jim, thank you for a very interesting conversation. And again, the book is UFOs Above the Law. Is it Schiffer books? Schiffer. Schiffer, right. And uh, you'll be able to find that at Amazon, et cetera, Amazon.com and any bookstore. And, uh, Jim, we'll look forward to seeing you in uh, October at the, uh, in Lemonster, Mass. at the second New England UFO conference. I'm looking forward to it. Very good. All right. See you then. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Okay. All right, everybody. We're coming down to the last uh, minutes of our second half hour here in our special edition. And we're going to try and spend the second half hour uh, in um, answering some of the emails that have been piling up. And, of course, we have so many guests and uh, very little chance, uh, really, less than we used to. Uh, to do open line shows to catch up with the many, many emails we receive from all over the world. And we've got some really interesting ones we want to try and get through, even if it's just in the next half hour. So uh, why don't we, uh, we do have a minute or two, and uh, why don't we begin with one, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question, I'll read the question, and then after the break I'll give you the answer. This was meant for the show a few weeks ago when we had Nick Pope, a former British Ministry of Defense official who was responsible for UFO reports, uh, and also uh, John Burroughs, and they, uh, together with Jim Penniston, our good friend Jim Penniston, uh, authored uh, a book, Encounter at Reynoldsham Forest, which was a famous case we've talked a lot about. But anyway, this is someone, uh, Ronnie Dugdale from Suffolk, England, a good friend of ours who was written in. Uh, I have a question for Nick Pope. Nick has stated on several interviews and articles that Rendezvous in Rendlesham was the only book ever to require clearance from both the U.S. and U.K. governments. And let me interject here. That case involved many U.S. Air Force personnel, including high-ranking officers who witnessed UFO landings and other uh, phenomena in that area uh, right next to a NATO base in 1980, December of 80. And we've done a lot of uh, interviews and work on that case ourselves been there ourselves either. Anyway, uh, I am curious why this should be particularly, should be particularly as when Penniston and Halt, it's Colonel Charles Halt, the deputy base commander, had their final debriefing on leaving the U.S. Air Force, they both asked if they could talk about the UFO incident at Bentwaters in Christmas 1980. They were both told that nothing happened at Bentwaters, that's the name of one of the bases, on the dates in question. Nothing happened, so they were free to talk about it. So why would clearance for a book be needed now? Please ask uh, Nick, uh, who was um, the person in departments from both the U.K. and U.S. governments that required the book to be cleared with them prior to publication. The Ministry of Defense in the U.K. repeatedly claimed 
also that nothing of defense significance ever happened at Benton Waters, and claimed so even when questions were raised in Parliament on the Rendlesham Forest incident. And their kind regards Ronnie, uh, who was one of the people who showed Ben and I around Rendlesham Forest in uh, 2012. So we'll uh, take our break now and come back with the answer that Nick provided for us, Nick Pope, in just a moment. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 Radio. And we'll be right back on ON uh, 1240 and ONWorldwide.com in just a moment, so stay with us. Summertime is here. Make sure your summer plans include a nine-inning vacation with the Paw Sox to see the next generation of Red Sox stars, such as Anthony Renato and Mookie Betts. Tickets only $5 to $12, and the memories priceless. He steps on third for one, back to second for two to first. Triple play! The next Paw Sox homestand runs Wednesday, July 30th through Tuesday, August 5th, and includes Team Jersey Night on August 1st and Ladies T-Shirt Day on August 3rd. Make your plans for a nine-inning vacation with the Paw Sox today. For tickets, visit PawSox.com. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. With Paul and Ben Eno, our special, this is the final half hour of our special one and a half hour show today. Why we're having a one and a half hour show is a long story that has to do with politics. But in any case, we enjoyed our guest, Jim Bauck. And we'll continue with sort of the UFO theme here uh, with the answer to the question we read before the break. And this is an answer from Nick Pope, who, uh, anybody who watches the History Channel knows Nick Pope, uh, former official of the, U- of the uh, UK Ministry of Defen- Defense, the British Ministry of Defense, and he was responsible for several years for the UFO desk, taking reports and trying to determine whether they had any defense significance for NATO and, uh, and for, for Great Britain as well. So uh, this is the answer to the question about why the book they recently wrote on the Rendlesham Forests and it had to be cleared with both the U.S. and U.K. governments. Uh, here's what Nick writes. The, the manuscript for Encounter in Rendlesham Forest needed to be pre-submitted for official clearance to both the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.K. Ministry of Defense because the authors drew widely upon their respective government and military experience in writing the book. Let me interject here that the other two authors were uh, retired U.S. Air Force personnel who witnessed the incident in December 1980. Incidents, I should say. Uh, Nick continues, this covered not just the Rendlesham Forest incident itself, but matters relating to military equipment, doctrine, tactics, standard operating procedures, politically sensitive material, etc. It's sometimes difficult to recall with certainty what's classified and what isn't. So when people who have been involved in sensitive government military work write something that touches on these areas, it's prudent to check the position with the relevant authorities. While Encounter Rendlesham Forest is an insider's account of the UFO incidents, we're not whistleblowers and none of us wants to break the Official Secrets Act or violate our respective security oaths. So far as I recollect from my uh, Ministry of Defense service, one is not supposed to discuss the specifics of the publication's clearance process in relation to any particular book, so it would be inappropriate for me to name the specific departments or individuals involved, per the question. Uh, Best wishes, Nick Pope. You know, I have to. I don't like to take sides, especially the, the Rendlesham case has several sides to it, and people are adherents of one side or another generally. And we try to be neutral. We're friends with everyone involved. But I must say that um, I, I understand what Nick is saying here. As a veteran myself who uh, had a clearance, uh, it, everything Nick says here is true. Uh, you're, you're bound by your security oath for good. It's not just when you get out of the service. So I, I understand what Nick is saying here. And, and uh, 
because he was involved in the Ministry of Defense and various, and, and the two authors with him, co-authors, were involved in the U.S. Uh, military and uh, re retired from the U.S. Air Force, they were still bound by their security oath. So I, I understand what Nick is saying here, and I don't certainly have no problem with it, to say the least. Okay, so let's move on uh, to some questions that have come in on Facebook. And uh, I'll hand this over to Ben. This one is from Diana in Santa Barbara, California. Okey-doke. So Diana writes to us, I do not completely understand uh, why you do not believe in residual hauntings, but believe that there are... Wait, we already answered this. We did? Yeah, we answered this last time we had an open line show. Every time we uh, questions, you say we answered... No, answer. we did answer this. I remember this specifically. All right, well, I must be uh, older than I thought. Okay. Let's um, move on to this one, then. This is from Lisa, whom I believe lives in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. It doesn't really say... Oh, I guess not. I guess she doesn't live in Florida. Anyway. Whoever you are. Whoever. Yeah, well, we know Lisa. She's written in before. Right. Okay. So Lisa writes to us, Paul, have you heard of uh, trapezoid UFOs yet? I have not heard heard it mentioned on your show, but I have heard it on every, every well, essentially everywhere else. I saw one last year, around uh, 2013, in late October in Brunswick, Ohio. I was approx or I was approx it was approximately 1:45 p.m. I was walking my dog in the development uh, behind my house. It was a sunny warm day. There were a few clouds in the sky. I looked up and saw this upright silver trapezoid slightly floating slightly where am I getting that? Silently floating along from uh, east to west. It was shiny uh, but not from the uh, sunlight as it went right overhead then uh, west of me. I could see it was. I could see it in the distance clearly. Uh, usually, if it's shining from sunlight, at some point the reflection would go away, and you can see the object uh, clearly. It was uh, floating just below the clouds. It made no noise, or made no noise. Yes, uh, there was no exhaust, no windows, no lights, nothing. It just floated across at an even speed, kind of slowly. I s just stood there with my dog and stared at it. There was uh, no one else outside at the time. I felt like there must be uh, they mu that they must be seeing me uh, see them, but there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, I watched it disappear into the west, then uh, walked my dog home. I told Donna Vol about it, and she mentioned that there was a lot of activity going on in Olmsted Falls, uh, Ohio, which uh, would be northwest of me. Have you heard of anything like this? I do not know what that is, so I thought I would send you an email your way and hear your thoughts. Still enjoy listening to you and Ben. Thank you. Lisa. Okay, well, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, Donna Vol, by the way, is a good friend of ours. Uh, she and her husband, Dudley, have an Internet radio show on uh, spiritual and uh, paranormal subjects. Okay, the whole UFO thing, we haven't, don't usually express our opinion generally. We take in all opinions and uh, try to keep our feet on the ground about it, as, as we hope the people we have as guests do as well. There are many things that, of course, can be mistaken for UFOs, particularly around the time of um, late in the afternoon as the sun is beginning to set, and as it does set, there's the phenomenon uh, that comes to mind, and Ben, you can back me up on this, was the sun dog, as it's called. And what, as I understand it, that's essentially uh, crystals of uh, ice in the upper atmosphere that uh, catch the light of the setting sun and will look like uh, sometimes a comet with a tail or just a big bright object. Right. Uh, so so that there are things that can be mistaken for UFOs, and there are true believers who, you know, you might know very well this is an, an airplane landing, in a field, and they'll get irate and say, that's a UFO. 
Right. Well, I guess if you don't know what an airplane looks like, then you've never seen an airplane Well, if it's before. at night, particularly, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was being facetious. Yes, but well, assuming someone is not just thawed out uh, of a block of ice from the uh, last ice age, they know what an right. airplane is. Well, I feel, yeah. I, I'm thinking that um, sometimes it's, it's harder to look for explanations. I mean, I, I, she does make a good point. Um, she said, what, it was like 3 p.m., something like that. Mm. Then... Sun would probably be a little little past the west. October? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. In October, yeah, it w- it would be it would already be in the process of setting at that point. Not not in October. No, I'm trying to remember. My my astronomy is just going well. Down it would the be right it was, it's late afternoon. The sun would be uh, westering, as they used to say, but it wouldn't be near the horizon. So it's a fun word. So I mean, it might be a little early for a sun dog. And pl- plus, the shape is interesting. Mentioning trapezoid UFOs, of course, uh, in the past. 10 to 15 years, the triangular UFOs have been very popular. Uh, if, um, well, they've been associated with a number of uh, different locales. One, of course, being Belgium. There was, a, in the early 80s, I believe, there was a chase by the Belgian Air Force of a, a, a triangular UFO that was seen all over that area. Uh, the Phoenix Lights, as they're called, as in Phoenix, Arizona, involve uh, some trap, or I should say, some uh, triangular UFO sightings. Um, I often cite the case of you, when you and I were flying to San Diego in uh, 06 to do a program, I was um, on the other side of the plane from you in the middle of the night, and I saw what I believe were the Phoenix lights, because they were report. when we got to San Diego, the newspaper the next day said they'd see the Phoenix lights the previous night. So uh, anyway, whatever it was, but I didn't, I've never seen a triangular UFO that I know of, as a matter of fact, I've only I've seen very few UFOs. Period. Or, or probably none. I don't know. I'm not a UFO expert, although we're getting into the field because ghost research, obviously enough, have have oddly enough has led us into it. Because the more you look at cases, uh, the more they involve multiple kinds of paranormal phenomena, seemingly, and it's helped us develop kind of new ideas that we're going to be speaking about at several conferences this fall. I suppose, but we haven't done extensive amounts of research on no, it, so I no, feel as if our our opinion is. Either uh, moot. Well, I don't think it's moot. I mean, I, you know, I'm you're you're an intelligent person who's a sound expert. I'm a trained journalist, and I, not a sound you know, expert. You, you have to um, you have to know that there are other I'm still things. Still in college, I don't have a degree. And well, I nevertheless, I well, I do, and therefore, you know, I mean, it's 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 for what it's worth. There are things that you see that you can interpret as paranormal that are not paranormal. As a matter of fact, more often than not, I would say they probably aren't paranormal. That's the thing. Right. So, uh, anyway, the triangular UFOs being very popular now, as Lisa's pointing out, the trapezoid UFOs are coming about. And our good friend Ted Phillips from Missouri, who is a, probably the, has the greatest database, the largest database of UFO landings, landing reports and evidence, would say maybe the technology is changing. But you know what strikes me about these UFO cases, Ben, and I was going to bring it up with, with Jim. Um, if we talk to him again, we, well, I'll bring it up. A lot of these sightings seem to be very personal, and as Lisa points out, she felt as though they knew she was seeing them or it or whatever it was. There's all sorts of speculation about what these really are, and I find that very interesting, and I keep going back to that case in Connecticut where the fellow reported to us he had this sighting uh, near his house over his neighborhood, and he said he felt as though he was being tested. I still don't get that. I, I don't. That's a funny way to put it. I don't. Uh, I don't understand what that means. I mean, I understand that this is something that's beyond our framework of understanding, 
But I don't understand what it's, I just, it's just a weird way of putting it that I don't know if I can, what's the word, uh, put together in my mind what that would feel like. Yeah. Is, is it like, what kind of test? Well, neither could they before it happened to them. Well, I mean, like, what kind of a test? Like, oh, are you ready for this? You ready to see, see a UFO kind of test? Or like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of things about that. It's it's always pointed out on this show, and then I, the more it's pointed out, the more confusing it seems. Maybe, maybe that maybe that's intentional. Probably. Maybe whatever is doing this, or at least some of the whatever is doing this, it wants to confuse us. Because it, that's the thing in the paranormal. Nothing is what it appears to be. You see, you know, we see everything from our framework. Aha! It's something in the sky. It has to be from another planet. Well, we don't know any such thing. And we have so many guests who are, you know, they don't question that. Even some of them, some of them are brilliant scientists. They don't question that that's what these are. Well, uh, I mean, at least we, not do, a we lot. still have that. As much as we like to deny it, we still have that materialistic paradigm in our science. Yes, we do. And it's it's hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. It's extremely hard to get rid of. And. It's being it's being propagated all the time. Not to say that materi- material isn't important. It's all about spirit. I mean, it, it should be more um, balanced in its approach. Yes. Oh, by the way, this is supposed to be an open line section of the show. Our phone numbers, which I always forget to give, are 401-766-1240 locally and from anywhere in the U.S. and Canada, 800-449-1240, 12.40 Okay. Here's your kind of question, Ben. This is from George. What is, George. what is the meaning of life? George doesn't say something like that. Where does George uh, live? I don't know, but it's George anyway. Yeah, oh, so that very, was the question. Very where brief question. Live? We already where's, asked where's this. Where's Waldo? No, we already asked this. We did? Yes. Well, I must be senile because... Uh, what about this one? Did we ask this? Let's see. Uh, who's that from? Uh, no, we haven't asked this. Well, I, there I we go. What kind of special therapist do you feel uh, a person slash child should see if they're dealing with poltergeist activity? All right. Now, that's a loaded question, brief but loaded. Well, having dealt with poltergeist, uh, I don't know. It's very difficult to say what what kind of therapist, special therapist. Well, the first tendency a lot of people have when they deal with poltergeist activity, and I should explain what that is, uh, poltergeist is a German word meaning um, es- essentially noisy or troublesome spirit. Okay, and uh, it's a phenomenon that uh, I've witnessed on several occasions. It is not pleasant. Uh, objects fly around the room. You feel sometimes presences, and all sorts of terrible things can happen. The one I referred to in my conversation with um, Jim Bauk earlier in the show when we were talking about UFOs, UFO experiences by police officers. Uh, this was a poltergeist experience that I was involved with for several days involving a number of police officers and firefighters. And uh, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about with poltergeist activity, things moving that you can't see anything actually physically moving and all this business, sometimes people being hurt, including myself. The child involved, and there very often is a child involved, is... Um, there, it's, it's not... I, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my honest opinion on that. I don't think the child necessarily should see a, see a therapist as much as a, if you deal with a therapist at all, because they're a therapist and they're a therapist. And, and when I worked in, when I was doing graduate work in psychology and when I was in the seminary, I'd say 85 to 90 percent of the uh, uh, professional me- mental health professionals were basket cases themselves, you know, 
you know, $15 fruitcakes and mm-hmm. had all kinds of personal problems in their own lives. So the first tendency is to perhaps to call a uh, member of the clergy. The trouble with that is that members of the clergy are not generally taught how to deal with this sort of stuff. And uh, when they are, it's very often from a very narrow point of view or or a point of view that I don't think really matches up or or measures up to what is actually going on. I'm thinking perhaps that the whole family in the poltergeist case needs to be uh, helped in in some way. And I I really don't know where to send you. Um, this, uh, so we can tell you where not to go. Well, I, yes, I would certainly tell you n- not to go to, to these uh, half of these these uh, yeah, paranormal investigation groups or you know self-appointed experts who've read books by other self-appointed experts, and I that I wouldn't use as doorstops most of the time. And I just I think that you should be very wary of those groups. There are a lot of people who will um, will come in and tell you you're having a demon experience, and that that's what's causing this. And maybe it is, but I've n- I've never found that to be quite good enough to explain what's happening. I don't think these these creatures, and they are creatures, they're not spirits or servants of Satan, in my opinion. They just don't have the same theology we have. Sometimes a Christian exorcism will work. Sometimes it won't work, or whatever whatever view the people may may have uh, who are experiencing this. So it really is a muddle, and. Uh, I, I really don't know to, to tell you what kind of therapist to uh, to use. Uh, I have worked with um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychiatric social workers, off and on on different cases, and, and many of them have told me that I'm more skeptical than they are, which might surprise you. But it is uh, psychologists and police officers and clergy who will run into this uh, this kind of thing most often, and their approaches can be very different and usually, in my opinion, wrong because they don't see the multiverse aspect. They don't see that these are living creatures, sort of, in our opinion, cosmic mosquitoes, as it were, who are feeding on uh, the energies that people produce. It sounds, sounds crazy, but, it, but that's what it seems to be happening. Um, and you have to know some physics, and you have to, know, uh, a lot of, you have to have a lot of common sense when it comes to this, as much as common sense can apply. So I don't know how to answer your question, uh, here, really, uh, I think it has. To, every case has to be taken one at a time, and I just think we. Ha- what do you think, Ben? I mean, what what would you say? Uh, well, what I say is there's just so much incompetence and misunderstanding that I don't know where to send anybody. Well, that's assuming that our understanding is correct. Assuming our understanding is correct, then I mean, people people will deal deal with things in their own way. I mean, children they can they can take this stuff weirdly enough. Usually, you'd expect it to be other the other way around. Mostly, I'm I'm assuming because a framework hasn't been developed around it already, where something something like being picked up and thrown across the room is so earth shattering to your existence and causes you to have an existential crisis that you need to go see a therapist about it. Um, I don't know. It would have to. I'd have to agree with you that it would have to be an in like a case-by-case basis. Well, you also have to consider, the, the, of course, with the poltergeist thing, people can see it, it's happening to a lot of people. Yeah. But uh, paranormal experience um, in general, very often if, it, if it's being experienced by one person, the um, question of schizophrenia may arise. And one of the things you have to look at as a, a person who's dealing with it is what is going on medically in the life of this person. And again, if other people are experiencing it, I mean, there is such a thing as group hysteria, supposedly. Well, it feels if we're, the, the, the email, uh, not, not to speak for the person who wrote it, 
it's written in in a way that's like if you have a certain if you have a certain problem, you go to a certain person with it. Right. To, to fix it. Right. Yeah. And some of the stuff, it can't be fixed with like going to therapy or going or taking antipsychotics or something. There there has to be another another way. So you have to look at the problem in multiple ways and say, all right, so if I do this, this will be the outcome. Or if I if I take this this uh, this route, this outcome will be this. So you can, it's not a one shot solution. You have to really think your decision through with who you're going to see. Well, that's true. And the reason I suggest a family approach is because the people in the locale, whether it be a house or whatever, or, or an entire area, which we often find, uh, are participating in the experience. Yeah. If it's a poltergeist situation, which we believe is a parasite situation, the people are feeding it. And, and they do tend, the ones we've seen, do tend to concentrate on one member of the household at a time. So it may seem that the little girl... Uh, was the center, and, and she was, for all, but, but, but uh, if they move on, I've seen them go to other members of the family and concentrate on that person. I don't know why they do that, but that's, that's what they seem to do. So, uh, again, if, if you so, uh, sort of respect our point of view on this, pl- uh, keep in touch with us. Uh, I know it takes us a long time to answer uh, emails and things because we have so many, but if, if we see one that is um, really an emergency, then we, we do try to, to put some attention on it. Of course, we're limited by our uh, geographic location. We, can't, we have people in Australia who need help, and we can't just jump on our Gulf Stream and head for Australia, you know. So um, there are limitations to what can be done, but uh, simply keeping in touch and, and gaining useful information can be helpful. And I'm going to give this advice and this is good advice for any family in any situation, whatever, paranormal or, or normal or whatever. Stick together. Keep it positive. Keep humor and good feeling alive in your household, and that repels anything negative. And as I said, it's good advice for any family. Well, that's assuming that your family's together. Well, that's assuming, uh, your fa- yeah, well, that's true. Well, you know, you're right. There are a lot of families that are not together. But whether your family is just you and... Uh, you know, roommate or whatever. I mean, th- this this is important. Whoever your circle, I mean, most likely you don't live your life in utter isolation as a recluse. And so, again, sticking together with positive people, whether it be friends or whatever. And remember, in if our multiverse approach is is correct, that you have many many lives and many many universes, uh, which quantum physics seems to indicate, and that we see played out in paranormal cases, then you are never alone, and you are never unloved. So, again, build on that. And as I always uh, have told my sons, uh, laugh, but not at each other. You know, <laughs> Keep it positive, that's the thing. So that's the best thing you can do, and then kind of take it from there. Okay, I think we've got time for one more here. Indeed we do. Okay, and this is from uh, Bob in Cumberland. Let's start with that second. So Bob writes to yeah. us. Hi, Paul. This is Bob from Cumberland. Uh, have you read the Source Field Investigations by uh, David Wilcock? Not an easy read, but it goes into great length and seemingly proves your multiverse theory. If you haven't read it yet uh, and decide to do so, then I suggest you start at the last chapter to get the overall concept of his decade-long investigation. He goes from uh, sacred geometry to pyramid power and much, much more. Best regards, Bob. Okay, well, thank you, Bob. Uh, actually, uh, since you wrote that, I have taken a look at that. We know David. We, he's been on the show. And we very much liked him. I'm a little surprised at that because a lot of people think he is, uh, what has it been, the reincarnation of Edgar Cayce or something? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But we did like him a lot. Uh, Edgar Casey, for those who don't know, was, a, uh, was known as the sleeping prophet early in the 20th century. He was, uh, would uh, apparently kind of go to sleep or something and, and then sort of wake up and then t- tell these prophecies or whatever, or prophecies in, the, in the, the popular sense, you know, foretelling the future, which is theologically is not necessarily what a prophecy is. But he became quite famous, and uh, he, there's an education institute in Virginia that was, is very popular, and people can go study there, et cetera. Et cetera. But I, don't, I don't know really what I think of him, but there are a number of people we know who uh, follow his practices, and, and one, Murray Silver, our good friend Murray Silver in Georgia, who was, uh, whose family was very much involved. So, so uh, David Wilcock, uh, who was a uh, – he looks – I don't know how old he is. He looks relatively young, but he's written a number of books. Uh, has some interesting insights, and uh, I think it is um, the multiverse idea that we just talked about, uh, Bob, is is uh, seemingly coming to the fore in many areas. I think people have had enough of the silly nonsense that goes with a lot of the paranormal stuff and the campfire ghost stories, and they, w- they want something deeper. And uh, sure enough, I think that's... Uh, a little more than spooky, scary skeletons. Well, precisely, exactly. So I don't know if I dare hand you another one, you'll... No, we tell me that. No, we we uh, we could probably start finishing up now because we do have a lot of announcements. Yeah, we do have a lot of announcements. Okay, so let's begin our announcements. Um, as we uh, have mentioned before, the Exeter Kiwanis UFO Festival is coming up in Exeter, New Hampshire, on Saturday, August 30th. Ben and I will present a program on strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts. Other speakers will include the great Stanton Friedman and Bob Schroeder, both of whom are frequent guests on the show. And we'll offer more information as it develops. And again, that's uh, a little more than a month away. And you can check uh, the website, www.exeterufofestival.com. And we're going to be raffling off free tickets uh, to that event as we did last year. And we'll give you more information about that as we go. Then on Saturday, September 20th, uh, we will be at the True Paranormal Event 2014, a celebration of advanced understanding in the paranormal. I like the sound of that. Times are 11 to 4, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Brookline Event Center in Brookline, New Hampshire. Ben and I will present a program, as will our good friend Shane Searway of TrueGhost.com. Uh, you've heard him on the show several times. He's organizing the event. Also speaking will be Bill Hall, author of the new book, The World's Most Haunted House, about that very Bridgeport, Connecticut poltergeist case that I mentioned in 1974 where I was involved with Ed Lorraine Warren. So after all that, there will be uh, two events for which we will be raffling tickets off for. Uh, One is the Experiencers Speak Conference at the Clarion Hotel and Conference Center in Portland, Maine, and that is on September 6th and 7th. This is a UFO conference uh, focused on abductees, experiencers, and contactees. Anybody can attend, of course, and it will be very, very interesting. So we will draw draw the winner of uh, four free tickets uh, out on our... uh, August 25th show. It's only a couple weeks away. Actually, about a month away. Mm. Uh, find out about the event at www.experiencerspeak.yolasite.com. That's uh, Y-O-L-A-S-I-T-E.com. Uh, the other event for which we draw tickets is, of course, as we said, the second New England UFO conference on October 17th and 18th at the City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Ben and I, along with our guest, Jim Bauck, this evening, will be speakers. And again, uh, Stan Friedman will be there, and all the great uh, UFO people uh, will be there. Uh, we'll raffle off two family packs of tickets on the show as we did last year, as I say. 
And the site to find out more about that is neufoconference.vpweb.com. There are links to all these on our own site, Behind the Paranormal. So that makes it easier than us just talking about it. So that's uh, behindtheparanormal.com. Yeah, and if you just go to the main page, there are banner ads for all of these things, and they'll they'll take you to uh, either to the email to send in your ticket uh, information. contest information uh, or to and or to the website for the event. Okay, so to enter either of the contests in more detail, you can send an email to us at behind the paranormal or Paul at behindtheparanormal.com, or you can drop us a snail mail at uh, behind the paranormal care of W O O N twelve forty A M nine eighty five Park Avenue, Winsocket, Rhode Island O two eight nine five. Again, that's behind the paranormal care of W O O N twelve forty A M nine eighty five Park Avenue, Winsocket, Rhode Island O two eight nine five. So be sure to include your name, address, and phone number. And there are links at BehindTheParanormal.com. So the Drawing for Experiencers Speak Conference will take place on the air on Monday, August 8th. Or 18th. 18th. Right. Saw the 8th and said 8th. It's August 18th that for that show. And for the New England UFO Conference, that's going to be on September 29th. And you can also visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 550 free podcasts of uh, past shows but from both WOON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Also, check out our site at www.newenglandghosts.com, and that is where you can find case studies and photos, along with articles, by my dad. And I've written a few books myself. You can check those out at Barnes & Noble, uh, Nook, uh, the e-reader, and Amazon Kindle, and Amazon.com, etc., etc., the usual suspects. But if you buy them directly online at BehindTheParanormal.com, I'll be happy to sign them for you. And you will help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our site, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including USA Cares and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Also, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great things for at-risk youth, youthmentoring.org. And next Monday, July uh, 28th, here on WOON 1240 and uh, owenworldwide.com, we will welcome author uh, Philip Camella for a look at whether the cosmos has a mind. Yes, The Death of Materialism is the name of his book. I, oh, I, really? That, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to look at it yet. So. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it sounds really interesting. Exactly. Uh, so in any case, we will leave you with a wonderful quote that I'm going to use many times, and that's um, momentously important. It's from a 20th century French novelist, Anaïs Nin. There's a name for you. We do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on this very interesting and rather long edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. We will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.